Cappuccino with Constable Brian. Real people, real stories. My guest today on the Cappuccino, she's been on the show previously, Gwendolyn Smith. She's a clinical psychiatrist. She's a writer. She's now a best-selling author as well. Congratulations on that, madam. Breast cancer survivor, a bipolar sufferer, the author of The Book of Knowing, and now the best-selling and number one book, she's just told me, in New Zealand, non-fiction, of course, The Book of Overthinking. Welcome. Hi, Brian. Nice to see you again. You too. Uh, as you know, we do our pop quiz round, and I've actually, I'm going to ask you almost the same questions I asked you last time, and then I'll tell you what you told me, so that you can go and buy by God, did I say that? Um, the last book that you read was what? The Poet by Michael Connolly. There you go, and you had just finished reading, I'm going to say, The Colour of Somebody's Murder, where it was about a boy who suffered from sensory processing disorder and a whole bunch of stuff. Oh, yeah, the last yeah, one, I there you go. That now. Your last aha moment, I'm going to tell you what your last aha moment was when you were with me. You were in the dentist chair and you said... Uh, I think I might have been affected by the gas, but I think I might have come up with a concept for my latest book called The Book of Overthinking. Wow. There, you go. there, there you go, yep. So Is that where it came from? Well, yes, yep. So um, so what was your last aha moment? I think getting into the front of your car outside my house, Brian. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's all right. Because as I said to you last time, I said, this is such a treat for me to be in the front seat, not the back. That's great. Love it. Favourite social media of the moment? I don't really have a favourite one, Brian. I guess the one that I tend to use the most would be Facebook, I'm reluctant to say. I can't, I just don't get Instagram. I, I mean, I know it's for younger people, but I sort of think, who can be bothered scrolling through mindless photos of people's curated lives? <laughs> not know? wrong, not wrong. Um, yes, I saw a great Bill Murray quote about that the other day, but that's another story. Are you a worry or a worrier or a ruminator? See, I've read your book, you can tell. Me? Mm, neither. I'm on so much medication, Brian, to be honest. I don't do either. Beautiful. Uh, do you... I've got a friend of mine who wrote a book last year and one of his favourite tricks is to go into bookstores and watch people looking at his books. Have you ever done it? No. No, I don't do that, but I must admit I've have got a bit of a habit of just going in and looking and checking that they're on the shelf. Nice, good week. Alright. So, uh, if overthinking is causing you a few problems, then you have come to exactly the right place for this podcast. Um, I'm not going to give all of Gwendolyn's secrets away, that's not fair on her, and it's not fair on her book either, but uh, first of all, congratulations on the success of the book of Overthinking, as well as the book of Knowing, because I think the last time we met, that book had only just been released and we are a little bit sort of so you've now had, and I'm guessing you still currently have as well, two books in the top five for non-fiction New Zealand. Um, is the book of overthinking, in your mind, is it a sequel, another chapter, a completely different story, or...? It's just for a different group of people, Brian. Mm-hmm. Um, knowing, you know, that we talked about last year, was really directed at um, young people. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying that young people wouldn't appreciate this book. In fact, since the book came out, I must have had at least five under-20s turn up with the book, saying, this is what I do. 
Um, so it's not that age specific, but I just um, made it a bit more grown up. And I mean, you know how I feel about my illustrations. <laughs> and, and I think that grown ups like comic books just like kids. They do, you're not wrong. Overthinking is a term that's much more accept acceptable and digestible for the average person. So two questions for you. Why do you think the term overthinking is more acceptable to adults? I, I really pondered this when I first started writing the book because I didn't know how I was going to come up with a satisfactory definition. Mm -hmm. Because when people have come into my office at work and I'm sort of like hunting around for a diagnosis so that I can come up with a treatment plan, and I'll say, um, would, do you consider yourself a warrior? No. Mummers? Mum's mm. a warrior, but no, no. And I'll say, um, overthink. Oh, look, keeps me awake at night. When I listened to the content of what they were doing, it's exactly the same as worry, mm. but it's a contemporary term. And I think that it's softer less clinical and it doesn't reek of um, a mental health issue. Without being too much of a word corrector, because everybody hates those people, would it be fair to say that a lot of people have actually overthought about overthinking, if you know what I mean, those people who come in and do exactly what you say, but they haven't, sorry, they've overthought, they're overthinking far too much for somebody three, four generations ago, they would say, oh, it's a bit of a worry or something else. Do you think they've overthought their overthinking? We've actually got a term for that. Um, it comes from the research world and it's meta. And when it's when you do an analysis of the analysis. Mm -hmm. So you get a whole group of results, you know, that have analysed some phenomena and then you analyse all of them. And so the, the clinical term is meta worry and that's worrying about how much you're worrying or in some cases worrying about not worrying mm -hmm. mm. Um, is it a problem that most of the population suffers from or is it uh, a bunch of particular individuals hand ringers um, people who can't make a decision uh, people who might you know you ask them a question and you have to sit there and wait for the response to come through because they are busy thinking about something else or is it something that everybody will suffer from in their life? How I decided to divide it in the end, Brian, was I thought, okay, everything has a yin and yang, or yan, I never know which one it is, but, but so you've always got a dark and a light, you know, of most things in um, human nature. Mm -hmm. And so how I divided it, I said, well, you know, positive overthinking would be awake all night, making lists, writing things down because your wedding's coming up and you want to make sure that you've got the seating done, you want to make sure the frock's finished, you want to make sure the best men have got their suits, tick, tick, tick off the list, right? Because it's an important thing. Mm -hmm. But the act of doing it, um, although for some people stressful, you're gearing towards an event that you're really looking forward to. And if you have a couple of, you know, sleepless nights because you're making lists, who cares, no, right? Yep. But when you get into worrisome overthinking, 
It is this constant circular pattern of thinking that is uh, traditionally about predicting disaster. Mm. And that that's the difference. And so this goes on every night and that's when it starts affecting people's physical and psychological health. So, so that's how I decided to um, define the difference because I think, yeah, I mean, most people will, if they've got a project on, make lists, tick boxes, you know, think, oh God, you know. Mm. When I was researching the podcast, I read about a number of entertainers that would suffer from anxiety or they've come up with creative ideas uh, when they were trying to sleep and people suggested to them writing in a book and then putting it away and that was it, it was done for the night and they could move on. Mm. Um, there's an interesting side note, that is how Billy Joel wrote The River of Dreams. I know, yeah, there you I go. heard that interview. Yeah, perfect, so, so there you go. Um, so like you've said, overthinking isn't at all a bad thing if it's event focused and you've used the example that mm. you use in the book with the wedding dress and the wedding and everything else. There's two types. There's, uh, according to the book of overthinking, you've got ruminating, which is rehashing the past, and worrying, which is fear and anxiety. Both of which normally result in, I'd love this, um, your words, not mine, a great way to, as we would say in Ireland, feck up everything. Why? Why is it such a great way to feck up everything? You Can you do both, or can you only be sort of uh, an A-grey student in worrying without rumination? On others, if you know what I mean. Ruminating tends to sit in different classifications, Brian, like um, depressed people constantly going backwards, looking at this regret, guilt, shame. Mm -hmm. So that's very much a depressive profile. Um, people with obsessive compulsive disorder also ruminate. They get stuck in these circular things about have I switched off the lights? Um, have I checked this? Have I checked that? Is this clean? Is that symmetrical? You know, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. Worry is, by definition, the prediction or forecasting of constant disaster. Usually starts with the term, mm, yeah, but what if? Mm. And when you said before, Brian, about, you know, about the hand-wringing and the difficulty with decision making what's triggering that is the what if mm, yeah if I make that decision but then what if so and so and then what if what if what if so I've found that 95% of the worry spiral is kicked into play by those two little words what if let's use a really uh, shall we say uh, modern example then coronavirus uh, which is currently on everybody's, so to use a bad term, on everybody's lips because we're getting bombarded by the media. We're seeing these figures go up of infected cases around the world and people are beginning to go, what if they're buying toilet paper in bulk and everything else? Um, is it? Do you see it uh, as, it's not needless worrying because I'd say that there is probably some app cause for that worry, but do you think that some people are worrying about it just a, a bit too much perhaps? People with health anxiety will be all over it. Yep. It's because it, it's like their biggest fear. People with OCD will be all over it because the spread of germs, contamination, you know, so that would be driving them crazy. 
Um, I what I I think about things like this is that, as I've said in the book, Brian, I like the word concern mm-hmm. rather than this endless circle of worrying. Um, people are concerned. I thought the panic buying was a bit unnecessary. Well, quite unnecessary, but. And so what I like to do is I like to follow what the academics are saying, not what popular media are saying. And so, and I tell you what really cheered me up this morning was I was out last night with these very smart young people and they were talking about the place in China, you know, that was the hub. What's mm-hmm. it called, Brian? Uh, I'm going to say it as Wuhan, but that's not how you pronounce it correctly. I know, correctly. but that's yep. the thing. Anyway, apparently they've been seeing the sun for the first time in three years. Yes, yeah, I Did heard you hear this. About yeah, it? it was fantastic. Well, it's, it's, it's online this morning and it was a piece. And, and, of course, the shots are coming from NASA, from the space satellite. And the decrease in pollution, um, A, because of industrial, B, because of less aircraft, is phenomenal. And to be a bit esoteric about it, it almost makes you wonder sometimes if there is a culling system. I mean, I'm telling you, I bet Greta Thunberg is um, is thrilled like with you, the air, aircraft down. It's exactly like you said, said at the beginning, it's that yin-yang effect, so not wrong. Uh, Mad Monkey. Uh, Mad Monkey Mind, overthinking, lack of sleep, uh, crazy brain there's got a whole bunch of other terms they're all terms that we've heard before but in reality all of those things are a complete recipe for disaster as well aren't they um because you have the worrying the rumination and all the rumination you have the lack of sleep then you have the fatigue and then everything just begins to basically it's like standing on a pit of quicksand isn't it yeah you start to sink um both physically and mentally um if you think that you are headed down that cycle and not too far in, into the quicksand so to speak what's the best thing you can do um okay dare i say it by the book that's obvious yes yep um because and all jokes aside brian i mean i've set it up so the reader in the second half of the book enters into a therapy room with me mm-hmm. and i go through as I would in a face-to-face consultation. And so therefore, great for people that can't afford private specialists, great for people in remote areas that can't access mental health clinicians. Um, And the cartoon even looks like you as well. When I saw it, I was like, yeah, that looks a little bit like Gwendolyn. That's quite smart. Yeah, the girls have done well. I thought they enjoyed making fun of me. (laughs) So um, if you're just that little bit further over the precipice, um, we're doing something sort of preventative like a self-help intervention is a bit beyond it um, first stop really is a, is a, is a um, visit with your GP mm. because what often goes first is the sleep and once the sleep goes then the system starts to become sluggish and, and the battery goes flat mm. and so sometimes um having a bit of a chat about sleep and insomnia can be quite a good place to start because there's quite a few good natural 
um, remedies because sleeping pills can be a bit heavy, mm -hmm. give you a bit of a hangover. But there's things like melatonin and tart cherry now that I suggest a lot of my clients try it out and they do with, you know, good success. Mm. Um, some of the therapies that are out there in the world at the moment, I'm not clinically trained in any way, shape or form. <clears throat> But there is a cynic in me that sits there and goes, hmm, really? Scented candles, eye masks, relaxing rocks, positive affirmations, all that type of stuff. Uh, are they a crock? Or are they, do they actually work in your opinion? I'm just wondering, because I did write about this. You and did. the illustration is fantastic. I'm just having a look to see if I can find what I said in a condensed sort of a way but until I find it so what the girls did was they drew a picture of someone standing in front of the mirror mm -hmm. with live laugh love down the side on little tiles you could replace that Brian with eat pray love yep that would work and um and so what I've said there is um the goal of cognitive therapy, which is what this book's based on, is not to teach positive thinking, which I refer to as putting sugar on beep. As, <laughs> as a result of cognitive behavioural therapy, your thinking becomes more constructive and helpful. I mean, think about it. You've been up half the night ruminating, predicting upcoming disasters. You haul yourself out of bed, feeling and looking like a train wreck. You go to the bathroom, you look into the mirror, and say to yourself the following several times over, I think positive thoughts about myself and others. You could have a candle there. You could have some aromatherapy. You while could, it's yep, maybe, yep. I protect myself against any hurt that comes my way. I like the person I see in the mirror. How's that going for you? Don't get me wrong, I'm not against people thinking more positively, but trying to put positive thoughts on top of negative ones is a complete waste of time. Yeah, exactly. And when I read that bit in your book, um, and that's exactly the reason why I've asked you that question as well, a lot of people think if they are beginning to go down that well of getting depressed or anxious or something else, if they do active relaxing, maybe do some extreme exercise or go mm -hmm. to the gym or something else, and like you say, if you're in that state in your bathroom mirror, let's be honest, the chances of you getting to the gym probably are not that good they're, to be they're fair. Lowered. Yeah. Probability is lowered. Yes, yeah. yep. So um, do you think that the internet and social media has made the frequency of overthinking worse? Because of this thing of we've got to we don't have to have perfection, but very often we see perfection and we think, well you know what, that looks perfect. That person's got the perfect life. Uh, I must be living maybe a life that's not that good. It's always a difficult area to really pinpoint, Brian, this one, because all I think the researchers say and the big studies say is that um, social media has contributed. We know it's contributed. The whole comparative thing is, um, and I do talk about that in overthinking, you know, is... Roosevelt's quote, you know, comparison is a thief of joy. I really totally agree with that. It's the second time I've used that quote um, in the books. I th you do see a really big contribution in social phobia mm -hmm. with the fear of being judged. 
Um, but you see, if you look at the Mental Health Foundation's anxiety stats at one in five, one wonders what that was like before social media. Was it still one in five? Um, I think social media aggravates. I don't know if it's a cause and effect. Mm -hmm. Is this all about being comfortable in your own skin, but not being not to the stage of being an obnoxious asshole about yourself? Do you think? Well, yeah. I mean, that's my goal. You know, for yeah. people is just be comfortable in your own skin. And, um, yeah, I don't think for a minute that that infers a sort of over-inflated sense of self-importance in some sort of narcissistic framework. No. I, and I always think about what Billy Connolly said, because Billy Connolly obviously is known for his outlandish clothes. Mm. And he says he uses his clothes as an asshole detective, because basically what he does is he says, if I'm wearing a pair of tartan shoes and somebody doesn't know me from the tree that's in the park there, they, and they come running over and point at my shoes and go, but Jesus, what's happened to your shoes there, Billy? They're a shocker. So straight away, my mind goes, eh, you're an asshole, and I move on. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah okay. Um, Lau Sue said, he who hesitates is lost. Um, and my wife and I very often compare ourselves, even though she's not really a Star Trek fan, to Captain Kirk being me and Spock being her, because mm -hmm. she's more of an overthinker than I am, and I'm, I'm more... I'm the empath. Oh, there you go, nice. Good but work. I didn't come into Star Trek Voyager, did I? No, you did not. No, no there was no... Yeah. No empath on the Enterprise, was Yeah. <laughs> no, no, there was not. There definitely not. Not in Kirk's day. Um, <laughs> that's for sure. So, is this the reason why, like, if you take the example I've just given of my wife and I, is this the reason why some people make better police officers or better soldiers or anything? And I'm not downplaying uh, my career choice or the career choice of any of my colleagues or anything else, but is it the fact that we can take situations assess things very quickly and how do I put this politely not overthink them if you know what I mean where that takes me is is really to think about the genetics of temperament Brian, the mm -hmm. genetic predisposition um, and the highly sensitive the high trait anxiety, that genetic contribution, which is 25 to 40%, um, you, you see, you know, those people um, in the arts, mm -hmm. you do see them in the helping professions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's, there's often, a, you know, there is a lot of literature on, on why people choose careers. Mm -hmm. and it, often involves an empathy with something like if you talk to a vet oh well, when i lost my little dog when i was seven i just knew i, I just wanted to be a vet you know mm -hmm. or my i grew up and my brother had schizophrenia and i just thought nah i want to i want to be a psychiatrist because i want to do a better job than happened there um because there is definitely um, a notable difference with people and when people talk about their children baby number one didn't know she was there slept all night really laid back baby number two awake half the night crying can't shut the door mm -hmm. has to have a nightlight on you know those that that sort of hypersensitivity and and that illustrates well the the um genetic contribution to temperament. I mean, I often talk to 
to my clients who are overthinkers and I'll say, so what are your siblings like? You know, anyone, anyone sort of doing the same thing? Oh no, I so wish I was like my brother. He's just so chilled. And of course the saying is, the old adage is water off a duck's back. Mm. And some people are like that. They're mm -hmm. born like that. Mm. Mm. Luckily my mother's Irish, so we tend not mm. to worry about too many things. Like you said, epigenetics plays a huge part in whether or not you're going to be an overthinker or not, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, chances are if your mother and father are overthinkers, then you're probably going to be an overthinker as well. Um, in police, we, we talk about breaking the, so the cycle of violence. Um, is there any way that you can actually break the cycle of overthinking, or is it actually something that is just going to continue generationally on in your family? Well, I'm thinking of a couple um, that I worked with a number of years ago. They both had um, clinically significant um, anxiety disorders. Mm -hmm. Two kids. Um, and were concerned that because of their thing, that they were leaving their boys predisposed to worry and anxiety. And I said, well, you know, I'm not a child psychologist, but I just sort of said, well, you know, just keep an eye out for it, you know. And then they noticed it was about six or seven, the eldest boy, and he just sort of stopped doing things at school and didn't want to go to school and, and this, that, and the other. And it wasn't a bullying scenario. What it actually was was that it was jumping in the swimming pool for school sports. And, sh you know, not show and tell, but, you know, the morning mm -hmm, talk mm. in the classroom. And so he was getting, like, a performance anxiety. So um, they rang me, and I recommended, and there's three books I've recommended on overthinking, and they are fabulous books on um, helping children with worry. And they're storybooks. And you read them to the kid, and of course that's giving them a way of processing what worry is, and in fact that it's like a little little thing in their head that they can actually say they don't want it to be there anymore. Because cognitive therapy is, um, you know, is just amazing mm. for kids. Mm -hmm. When you read a lot of entertainers' books, you'll often hear stories about them throwing up into rubbish bins or being so ill that they couldn't actually walk up to the stage they're having to be accompanied by people mm. once they hit the stage it's almost like they're a different person the worry, the rumination's gone they do an amazing hour and a half concert, everybody goes, my god that's the best show I've ever seen in my life Yeah. and the first thing that they do is when they come off go, was that okay? was that alright? Um, to some of their stage crew is it just a matter of um the show must go on and just getting on with it sometimes or do you think for for entertainers for instance there is actually a place for overthinking I me mean, i know that they're looking to hone their performance and everything else but let's be honest we both know people uh shall we say in the entertainment industry and a lot of those people will overthink lots of things that you i and other people wouldn't even begin to think about because we don't have any idea about the trade okay Another one of your great questions, Brian. A tricky one, yeah. But um, a three-point answer. Um, 
Richard Burton, the fabulous Richard Burton. Fantastic Welshman. Yeah, he said, you know, the day that you don't have butterflies or stage fright or whatever is the day you insult your audience. Mm -hmm. Now, given that he was drinking on average a 40-ounce bottle or something, <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. if we can take dicks. <laughs> no, no. Okay, so that's point one. Yeah. Um, point two, because I've just done an interview on um, anxiety in the arts, you look at someone like Barbara Streisand or Johnny Depp, mm -hmm. they are diagnosed with social phobia. Now, social phobia is the fear of being judged. So you think to yourself, well, how can Johnny Depp make all these great movies? And mm. how come Babs can get up in front of half a million people at the Met and, you know... Sing a heart sing out. Sing a heart out. It's because, and this is the third part of the answer, when they go into the performance mode, it's like their concept of self disappears. Mm -hmm. That the performance is being evaluated not them mm. they will often sort of reassurance seek afterwards is that okay was that okay but um the safety net for them is that the performance is being evaluated because the definition of social phobia is the fear of being judged mm. one area where everybody tends to overthink is their kids uh will he fall over will she um, trip there. Uh, oh, hang on. I don't know how long that yogurt's been past its expiry date, that type of stuff. Um, you'll very often hear some of, uh, should we say, the older generation look at things and go, you've got to be kidding, like trees being cut down in schools, for instance. Is there a danger that we can actually, we're going to be passing some of this fear onto our kids and then sort of two or three generations' time? I mean, people sometimes say that kids are wrapped in cotton wool now. Um, that they could well and truly be in cotton wool, bubble wrap, and maybe a cardboard box by the time th we're down three generations because we've become so risk-averse by overthinking? I think it's already happened. Um, looking back, I think the millennials who are in their 30s now, they were probably the first bunch that came through with that... Um, uh, with the manifestation of having been bubble wrapped. Mm -hmm. I think last time you and I spoke, Brian, there was a, there, we, I think we had a bit of a chat about helicopter parents. Yeah, we did, yep. And, and now they're talking about bulldozer parents that actually... And tractor parents yes, and, and yep. whatever else. But, yep. um, and you see, say if you say mum's a warrior, right? And everybody's out, you know, picnicking and um, there's a, a bit of a swimming hole, you know, and a lot of the kids are leaping up and down with their rubber rings and having a wonderful time. And our mum, our worrying mum, she's going, Brian, come away from the edge. I've t I'm not telling you again, Brian. Come, no, away from the edge. But the other kids are... I don't care what the other kids are doing, Brian. Come away from the edge. Yeah. That's how you teach fear. Yeah. And and that's what I've sort of covered, you know, with the epigenetics. Yep, okay, we've got the genetic predisposition, 20 to 40%, 25 to 40%, which is incredibly high. But then we've got the role modelling. 
role modeling of the behavior and the overprotective um, no you don't get no da, 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 that risk aversion thing that you're talking about mm. on average this is your words from the book of overthinking on average I work with an average of about seven people a day six of those are anxiety and four of those six present with worrisome overthinking have we reached an epidemic with worry or anxiety or do you think it's actually because we're a little bit more in touch better educated about these things than we were 25 30 years ago where you know you'd get the oh she's having a bad turn or he's not having a good day type chats whereas now I'm not going to say the average punter can spot PTSD but a lot of us are a lot better at spotting people who might need a hand do you think it's it's that I think it's with all of these things in psychological health you've got more information um, people are presenting so more so therefore your diagnostic figures are up um, I think they're, they're the two main things um, and that always complicates because when people say to you well is this on the increase is that on the increase is that on the increase you think well we didn't actually use these terms and we didn't actually know what this stuff looked like mm. 20 years ago I mean the diagnosis for social phobia that's not that old that's only about 15 16 years old mm-hmm. that's why not a lot of clinicians well people in the field know how to treat it because mm. you see it was just called shy mm. oh son's so shy oh you know Sansa's little daughter, gosh, she's so shy, isn't she? You know, she sort of sits under the table and the adults talking. So it was just seen as shyness. Mm. Um, so a lot of people that I work with, you know, that are adults, that have lived with something as debilitating as social phobia their entire lives, they said, oh, I just so wish they were talking about this when I was a kid. Mm. Mm. So I don't think we're looking for reds under the bed. I mean, and but I I do believe very strongly, and I say this often, that people see depression as the epidemic because of our suicide stats. Depression is not the epidemic. Depression is when the system is absolutely broken down. And uh, anxiety really is the epidemic, and you'll see it at the base of most of our more significant clinical disorders it's at the base of bipolar episodes it's at the base of you see it in in the build-up to psychotic episodes Mm. you certainly see a long grumbling picture of anxiety um, before a depressive illness but you know as you said Brian PTSD is is in a whole camp of its own because someone can be you know, wandering along, no high trait anxiety, no genetic term, you know, blah, blah, whatever, and then gets brutally raped. Mm, yep. Yeah, exactly right. Um, how, you've got a table of worry in the, in the book of overthinking and the answers to the what ifs, and I'm not going to give any of that way, mm. people can go and buy the book, um, but, and go and get the answers. For those that don't overthink um, and this is going to confirm every supervisor I've ever had in the New Zealand police. I generally think of myself as not an overthinker. I 
know how to let things come in and go out and they're gone type stuff but is it um for people who have got that ability like myself i guess uh, is it just a matter of us taking on the advice of somebody like alfred e. newman from the mad magazines and you know what me worry um without appearing stupid about everything uh, or when people are saying you know i think like partners for instance they'll very often if be unable to understand that their wife or their husband is awake for three four hours a night thinking about a presentation they've got or the fact that they're thinking about the kids or something else apart from the book of overthinking in the gp where's a good place for the non-overthinker to understand because when i read john kewan's book for instance on depression i could only get a third of the way through it because i'd never been depressed and i was like yeah no it's not really it's not striking a chord mm, with me mm. um and i can't relate to it and it's a bit like to me it was a bit re- like reading a, a fantasy book where you can't sort of associate with any of the characters and you've still got a thousand pages to go so tragically i put it down i've since read it but where's the best place for people to go do you think start off with a book of overthinking and then maybe ask your partner is this the way that we're going to stop the mad monkeys for you Okay. I've done it again, haven't I? Let's yeah. use a couple. Okay. Okay. Yeah, no worries. So I'm working with him. Mm-hmm. He's my primary client, and he's an overthinker. Yeah. Worrier. So he's anxious. So I'll go along and um, do what I do, and then I get to the bit where I introduce him to the thought viruses, the the perceptual distortions. Round about there, that's usually about the third session, but round about there I'll say, look, bring your partner next time and she'll turn up and I'll show her the list of the cognitive distortions Mm -hmm. and she'll go, wow, is that how you think? Mm. I had no idea. But then once she's got the language of worry in cognitive terms, she's then able to go, oh, come on, love, don't you think you're catastrophizing a bit? Mm-hmm. So they become like the, the co-therapist in the field for me mm-hmm. in terms of pointing out to the worrier what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Right, I'm with you. And that leads me on to that great quote that you've got in the book where you say, behaviour changes the outcome, worrisome overthinking changes nothing. Um, which nails it perfectly on the head, I think. Um, have we got a sequel or a prequel coming? And you can't steal the title from my book, which I'm calling the Book of Underthinking. <laughs> All right? So, what colours are going to be? I have no idea. I haven't quite no gone that far yet. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that sounds pretty outfit. good. Yeah, that'll be good. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. 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 Yep. Um, I mean, you've done knowing, you've done thinking, overthinking. Have we got a, a book of doing or a book of setting yourself up for success? Or Well, the next area that I am quite passionate about addressing is um, social phobia, mm-hmm. the fear of being judged. Because let's take Tuesday, for instance, seven clients four newbies under 20 mm-hmm. all of them fear of being judged mm. social phobia 
what I'm up against is, I mean, you go into Google and, of course, there's thousands of books, Dying of Embarrassment, mm -hmm. um, The Book of Being Shy, Overcoming Social Anxiety, Overcoming Shyness. But, you see, people with that condition are not going to pick up a book that says... Hi, everyone on the train. Exactly. Look at what I'm reading because yep. I'm a social phobic. Because their biggest fear is that people will look at them and judge them. Mm -hmm. So, um, which is the reason why I think, if I remember rightly, you called the book of overthinking the book of overthinking and not the book, book of, of worry. worry. Yeah. yeah. So at the moment, I'm. Um, stuck for a title so you can email me i'll have a think about it i won't You've i won't one. overthink it of course no, but I'll, I'd, yeah well, i'll certainly have a that. yeah no that's for sure for sure but yeah, you're definitely right i mean there's no way that somebody would go into a bookstore and pick up a book and announce to the one the store store owner mm. and then to everybody at home and everything else it's not something you're going to be comfortable with putting on a coffee table so once again Gwendolyn smith thank you very much for your insight please go and get this book uh, like I said, I'm not an overthinker, but my wife is. It has helped me considerably in, uh, let's say, observing some of the mad monkeys. And now I can use a few of your phrases as well, which is quite good. Uh, where do we follow you on social media? Because you have got a growing social media presence now that you're a best-selling author. Have I? You have. I've seen the Where pictures. Have you seen it? I've seen the pictures on Instagram with people coming out of bookstores and having four copies of your book. Oh, which wow, was sensational okay. yeah. uh, and the such like so where do we follow you because you are on Instagram aren't you now? yeah yeah I'm yeah. a bit slack with the Instagram but I think a photo of me getting out of the car you know and you and I I think we'll be yep, on there we can do that that's this easy afternoon. yep um, yeah and I mean I'm on Facebook um, and I guess people just go and have a look don't they yeah they do and the book of overthinking is available at all good booksellers as well as stores such as, uh, sorry, I should say areas such as Mighty Ape. And have you released it overseas yet or not? Is it yeah, gone? Yeah, I was talking to my publisher this morning. Apparently it's doing well in Australia. Great. And the Book of Knowing is, as we speak, being translated into Korean. But I'm swaying against a publicity tour at the moment. Yeah, I don't know why. Perhaps you've, ever, perhaps you've ever thought that too much. I'm yeah, just going to yeah. throw that out as the last one. So thank you once again, Gwendolyn. I look forward to maybe seeing you this time next year so that we can proudly say, well, well done, Constable Brian, you've come up with a book's title. Yeah. And boom, here it is. So to win a 511 Booney hat and a Camel Pack water bottle, and remember there's only one lot of these prizes to be given away, thanks to our good mates at Tactical Solutions Limited, you've got to answer the following questions. What are the names of the two best-selling books that Gwendolyn Smith has written? What are the names of the two best-selling books that Gwendolyn Smith has written? Competition is only open to New Zealand residents and will be drawn on the 20th of March, 2020. The way you enter is by sending me a DM to the Cappuccino Podcast. That's one word, Cappuccino Podcast on Instagram. Good luck. Cappuccino with Constable Brian. Real people, real stories. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss his next podcast.